that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Para-X Radio Network. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. This is your host, Jason M. Colwell, with my co-host, Andrea Venomous, is back with us again. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. I wish I could cue up some Rocky music. He's in the final stretches of getting that MBA. Yeah, but I got a little it's break right soon, now. Brother. So I got, I got a couple weeks off, and then one more class, and then that I'm done. Dun, dun, dun. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Does the time fly? Seems like it was just this past year. That you, you've been doing that for like a while now. So. Yep, yep. Yes, I have. Made it, we all made it through a really trying do magic challenge. I think it's kind of interesting. The people that I talked to that did the last do magic challenge, everybody seemed to have a different kind of trial in a sense. But they, but they persevered yeah. through it. Yeah, yeah. Well, not everyone did. We'll see what comes about because uh, some people are still doing it, obviously. Uh, but it was it was challenging and uh, lots and lots of questions more than anything else. But that do magic challenge is over now, and we're moving into the next do magic challenge. Uh, which is a challenge on enchantment or projective magic, which, of course, if you read Hands on Chaos Magic, there's tons of methods of projective magic in there, which could be sigils, it could be servitors, uh, it could be candle magic, conjure, lots of different things, classical sorcery, where the goal is to influence reality directly for results and not necessarily just make changes through internal changes. That challenge is actually starting June 1st. June 1st. Now, I know that for a while, you and Zach were talking about research phase and and the do phase is the... uh, Uh, This is the research phase of researching what you're going to... What you're going to do, yeah, researching and deciding what you're going to do, and then when you come June 1st, or any time in June, you could start up and uh, 
do. And there's different ways you could do it. Go to uh, listeners should go to do magic with a K dot uh, com and you'll be able to see some videos describing what the challenge is about, what you can do, how you can do it, any way that just even building rituals uh, with recording what you're doing every day for 30 days, as well as sharing uh, the Do Magic Challenge on occasion, would would qualify. So just share it out on social media. Some people share every post. Some people just share the Do Magic group, and they have their blog that they share occasionally. It's either way is okay. That's just so other people can look and get inspired by your work, so you're actually helping them. And it goes back to our general movement to actually do magic as opposed to merely just talk or sell uh, commoditized occult products. Yeah, and I'll say that the ones that I've been involved in, the the groups involved always are very um, positive and encouraging of one another. I, you know, it's refreshing actually, Andrea, because um, so many things that I see in the occult community these days are toxic. People being discouraging of one another, wanting to fight over petty BS, and I'm not seeing that happening in the Do Magic group. I, I see that people really, I don't know, maybe something happened behind the scenes, you had to kick out some bad apples, but I don't know about it. No, generally speaking, that that's not really happening. Like, I think everyone knows what we're here for, and the do magic as a movement and the authors involved really want to work and change the a culture in a way to focus on what's important and that's not drama that's not semantic arguments over the perfected ceremonial magic that's none of that and i think we're putting our actions where our mouths are and actually doing the work every day and i think for people who are actually getting into the cult, it's much more important to see authors doing the work every day and struggling than it is to hear a sales pitch. Let's just be honest. It's much more important. It's more authentic. You get to see uh, more about like how these experienced magicians actually work. Not necessarily the specific details. Often they have Authors will have their own books. You can read them, but you get to see like them actually struggle. It, it removes the marketing veneer, which is just garbage. And you actually get to see people being human beings struggling with magic. And you don't feel alone when, when that happens. Like, you know, if Andrea Vitimus and Stephanie Reiser is struggling with the challenge, it's okay that you are. It's not the best marketing or branding, but it is much more authentic as I said and it's much more in a way much better uh, place to take uh, the culture I won't go on and on and on because we have a guest today but you can check it out dumagic.com we are going to have some new things we're about to announce very soon that will allow people who don't feel comfortable with the public blogging to still participate that will be announced on the Do Magic site, possibly by the time this broadcast airs. And in future shows, when he gets me more info about all those new changes, I will share them with you as well. We're almost ready to release them. So next show, we'll be able to 
talk about it open. Uh, we just had to work out some details, but the important thing is that if you feel uncomfortable sharing a blog publicly because it's too personal, we will have some methods that you can participate in the Do Magic Challenge that don't involve publicly sharing those blogs. That's really the upshot. All right, brother. Thank you much for that new info. Looking forward to it. Okay, so folks, tonight's guest, Phil Farber, we're going to talk about the magic of cannabis. And I understand that's a controversial topic because it is not something that's legal all throughout the United States yet. But one, I think it's important for people to understand that this is part of historical magic. This is a part of um, an earlier culture that did change over time and is changing again. So some of you are in areas where this is perfectly legal. Um, those some of you still are not, and neither we or Parax advocate or condone the breaking of criminal laws. That's correct. So the opinions of the guests and the hosts do not reflect the Parax network. And we would not encourage you to do something illegal. However, if you are in a state where, or a country where such things are legal, feel free to participate as your legal conscience allows. And even if you are able to participate, you might just learn something interesting. Exactly. So tonight's guest is Phil Farber. And Phil... For those of you that have been following these paradigms of magic for a while, he's the author of Meta Magic, a book, the book of Atum, achieving new states of consciousness through NLP, neuroscience, and ritual. Now, he's got many publications that you can refer to the website at ddtrh.com. I'm going to have it on the profile for you folks. Phil is an instructor for Maybe Logic Academy, a certified hypnotist and licensed trainer of neuro-linguistic programming with a private practice in New York's Hudson Valley. Check out Phil's website at hawkridgeproductions.com. How are you doing tonight, Phil? Pretty good. How are you? Doing great. So, Andrea and I are having you on tonight to talk about this controversial topic of sorts that's becoming less controversial as time goes on because the use of cannabis is becoming more and more legal across the United States as time goes on. Correct. So, I want to know how... Because I believe we had you on the show before, quite a while ago. Uh, it's been a while, but yeah. It has been a while. Tell the audience how you got into your latest work with, with cannabis and... and what new discoveries you've come upon magically? Well, uh, I have been over the last couple of years, I've been working on a book uh, on cannabis magic uh, because it's, it, there's a void that needs to be filled. And uh, so uh, I've been researching that and going into that. And it's actually a difficult thing to do because uh, right now the situation is changing so rapidly that it's kind of hard to keep pace. And that's not just with the legalization and so on. It's also with uh, the way people are researching this. I mean, there's uh, the 
the scientific research into cannabis is kind of snowballing, not necessarily in the United States, but uh, throughout the world. Uh, and also uh, the, the historical research. Um, there's a guy named Chris Bennett who just published uh, uh, last month uh, a book called Lieber 420, which is this enormous tome uh, documenting the historical use of cannabis and magic going back to prehistory. Uh, fantastic book. I'm only a little ways into it at this point, uh, but uh, it's blowing my mind. Uh, and the, the point is that this uh, uh, cannabis has been used by, I mean, we have this, uh, this idea of, you know, sorcerers and magicians and witches and so on using various potions and plants and herbs uh, throughout history. Uh, and uh, the, the research into it is showing that, of course, one of the main ones going way, way back uh, would be cannabis. And there really is a very long, long and venerable history of uh, magicians employing this particular herb in their work. And it's only really in our lifetimes, or actually since 1937 or so, uh, that we, we've sort of lost that history. And uh, it's, it's cool that people are recovering it. Uh, and uh, we're also seeing, I don't know, in places like Colorado, where it's legal now, uh, the, the, it, they think it's a new thing, that they're having yoga classes and people are employing cannabis with yoga and so on. But, that's another one of those traditions that goes back to, uh, you know, the, the dawn of time itself. Uh, and there's even some thought that the, the cannabis experience was at the root of yoga, uh, that it was, uh, that yoga itself was an attempt to recreate the effects of some of these things. And I could get into this a little bit more uh, deeply, uh, maybe a little bit later. Uh, but uh, uh it, it forms that root, and, and uh, uh, Shiva, uh, Lord Shiva, who is the lord of yoga and so on, uh, gave cannabis to the human race as a gift for their yoga, among other things. Um, so, um, how I personally got into it is, well, I grew up in the 1970s when, uh, <laughs> uh, that's when people smoked a lot of pot in high school and so on, and uh, it's sort of the backdrop to, to some aspects of my life through the years, and uh, more recently, as I'm getting older and so on, I've uh, become more of a medical user uh, when I'm in places that it's legal to do that. Uh, sure. New York finally has a, a medical law. Um, so that's sort of where, where I'm at, and I've always noticed that there's uh, a lot of crossovers and uh, things between uh, uh, imaginative work in general uh, and magic and the use of cannabis. So one of the interesting things in some of the, the readings that we're preparing for the show is, and you kind of mentioned it, is this is a, a part of a living tradition if you're following Shiva. You kind of mentioned that. But why is cannabis so associated with the mystical arts, especially with Shiva being one of the more mystical aspects in Hindu, the Hindu religion? Well, there's a couple ways we can look at that. There's, there's the, the mythological aspect. Uh, in the one version of the Hindu creation myth, uh, they had to purify the Amrita, the nectar of the gods, uh, uh, because it had become poison. 
And that fell to Sheba to do that. And he stirred it. It was this milk-like substance. Uh, and he stirred it and, and employed a cobra to suck off the, the poison that was in it. And, and as he was stirring it, uh, according to the myth, uh, drops of it fell down to earth. And wherever the drops fell, a cannabis plant grew. And uh, Shiva gave that as a gift. Now, going even back further, uh, Shiva probably didn't originate with the Hindus. Shiva probably originated with the Scythians or the Indo-Europeans even earlier than that, who brought that uh, that concept, also Indra, another cannabis-centric god in uh, Hindu lore. Um, and uh, those earlier civilizations probably brought that into uh, uh, into India, and actually the, the Scythians are responsible for distributing cannabis throughout Europe and Asia and the Middle East and Africa and uh, all over the place, um, uh, along with the, the, the magical use of it. Um, there's a lot of evidence that some of these early uh, potions that were used, the, the Soma and the Homa, uh, were actually at, at various times and places it changed which plants were used but a common factor was probably cannabis through a lot of that history uh, and many of the rituals and magical traditions that uh, we carry on today may have originated through those original Soma rituals now that's, that's the mythological way of looking at it and the historical way uh, in the, the neuroscientific way, uh, we have these two competing networks in the brain. There's the, the default network, which is all about imagination and daydreaming and creating a personal narrative and things like that, uh, which is very uh, part of what we really employ in magic. It's, it's where our mythologizing comes from. It's, uh, it's where uh, our visions and our experiences uh, originate in that uh, network of the brain. Uh, the other part of that is, or the other competing network in the brain is executive function. It's our uh, ability to solve problems and to focus our attention. Now, normally, these two networks in the brain are mutually exclusive. Uh, when you're focused on a problem, uh, when the, the executive function thing is up, your imagination drops into the background. It, it disappears mm. for a while. And so this is, this is similar to what people learn in school traditionally about left brain, right brain, the idea that you have your functional brain, problem-solving brain, then you have your artistic brain. Yeah, although although the uh, the whole idea of the left brain, right brain is uh, it's not quite as cut and dried as, uh, right. uh, as we used to think. Um, in, in effect, the, the brain is kind of modular, and it... And the different parts of it hook up into these different networks depending on what's needed. Now, the, normally these are mutually exclusive. Uh, there's only a few situations where you can actually use both of those networks at the same time. One of them is hypnosis. And hypnosis is actually more about switching back and forth between these networks. Uh, the other one is the cannabis experience, and possibly also some other psychedelics and things. Uh, but... Uh, there's a, a guy in, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, Dr. Bossong, who uh, has, has been sticking people in the uh, functional MRI machine and doing various fun things with them. And what he's learned is that uh, in the cannabis experience, you can actually focus your attention and be imaginative at the same time. And so 
that that actually explains a lot about some of the things that you can do in magic and so on. I mean, in magic, you have to be, uh, I don't know, problem-solving to some ex uh, extent, and you have to be able to focus on the pragmatics of your ritual and, and also to have these imaginative experiences, to have the imagination come on and uh, connect up with your personal mythology and your, all these things that are our internal experience, the astral experiences that we have. Sure, so, like, so how, a, how does a, a, how does a magician, dude, I'm just going to add in how a magician has to be able to, at the same time, as you said, do the mechanics of the ritual, but at the same time have strong visualization processes going on. Absolutely, yes. And, and that's, and uh, cannabis definitely facilitates that. Um, if we look in some of the more recent magical literature, say Aleister Crowley, um, he, he was a big fan of using cannabis in the, in the ritual. And there's even one point, um, I can't actually find this in, in the, his diaries, but um, uh, Lawrence Sutton writes about it in his book, uh, Do It That Well, that uh, uh, at one point Crowley was doing magic and it was working so well with the, the hashish that he was using that he had to stop using the hashish to decide whether or not it was an illusion from the hashish or or it was the magic at work, uh, which is interesting. And I, I know personally a number of magicians who've, who've had a similar quandary. Uh, and hmm. uh, So uh, interesting. Although he did some of his more interesting... Uh, uh, visions and experiences. Uh, there was cannabis involved, and and so on. So uh, and many other magicians as well. But Crowley, he wrote about it a little bit more than other people. So we have some records. But one of the things is that uh, Alistair Crowley and and the other magicians are also coming from a place where they are highly trained in meditation. So it is actually an aid to mystical experiences and you could actually argue the same thing for devotees of Shiva um, like I don't I don't want to give the impression we're just saying you just do it and you have mystical experiences right. with no preparation that that's not quite what's going on that's a great uh, he was right exactly and, uh, and I, I would I would put that as, as kind of rule number one is that if you're gonna employ any entheogenic substances in your ritual Understand those substances very, very well separately, and separately understand your magic very, very well before you combine them. I mean, maybe maybe that's one of the things we should talk about is the necessary preparation to actually use cannabis in a productive way, uh, as opposed to just getting high. Because it's you're you're not just getting high; like you, you're using what the drug what the ethnogen is giving you to go to a different place. Yeah, correct. And, and uh, the, uh, I'd say there's kind of an incremental way of, of getting into that. Um, and the, 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 the first rule of, of using entheogens in general is, is uh, start low and go slow, right? You start with, with tiny doses, understand what's going on, um, you know, you don't want to get into a situation where something's happening that's outside of your control, particularly not in, in you know, a more intense magical ritual. Uh, so, uh, you know, at some point you do want to kind of 
rest your executive function and allow the visions and stuff to to flow. Uh, however, it, it needs to be in a in a context and so on. The the, the Shiva sadhus, uh, of course, they're you know they practice yoga all day long, and the 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 cannabis is used very specifically. Uh, in that and and inside a, a ritual frame, it's always there's always praise to Shiva and and a ritual done before they even light up. So uh, there's there's a lot of safeguards that are built into those kinds of things. And yeah, I would also say that as entheogens go and herbs in general, cannabis is particularly safe. There's you're not going to hurt yourself physically. Um, but you might get confused and have a bad experience, or you might, you know, uh, the, the usual pitfalls of magic apply. There's delusions and and illusions and and uh, you know <laughs> insanity if you're if you're going in the wrong direction. Uh, and and maybe the cannabis might intensify that a little bit. Uh, so you do need to be careful about that. You need to be incremental and uh, you know start low, go slow. So one of the interesting things that some of the prep work um, that we were learning about was default mode network. And you kind of touched on a little bit about how we actually, when we think about things, we have to do trans-derivational search and go back. And that kind of ties in with some of the work, even with the last show that we had you on, about how we actually search things in memory. But there were some interesting things that in the prep work we saw, like, that that network actually creates reality for us. And when we're actually able to do this focused and spaced out thing with cannabis used in the way we're talking about, it actually allows you to fundamentally uh, do something different with reality. And, you know, because you're working on this, on, on the cannabis magic book, maybe you could talk to the audience about the kinds of fundamental changes that you can make by using this, by when you kind of break down the imagination and the f mental focus or like the active waking state versus dreaming state or very, various other ways we could describe it. Right. The, uh, well, let's, let's look at that, that concept of reality creation uh, in the default network. Uh, Any time that you're given something uh, that you don't quite understand, uh, or it's a little bit vague, you, you go, your brain goes into trans-derivational search. It actually has to look for whatever that is. If I say, uh, think about some time when you had a, a very pleasant experience. I'm giving a vague thing, and to answer that, you actually have to sort through some examples in your mind. You go, oh, was, this is a pleasant one. This is, which one should I pick? Right? And that's trans-derivational search. And that's at the root of a lot of different trans experiences and, and so on. Uh, NLP practitioners and Ericksonian uh, hypnotists uh, all play around with inducing trans-derivational search for the purpose of bringing people into, into trance. Now, normally, we, it, most of that happens a little bit outside of our awareness, right? Uh, when I ask the question now and I, and I brought it into your awareness, you can bring that into awareness and notice that it's happening. Uh, however, most of the time, 
just to understand, for instance, the words that I'm saying now, your brain is doing this. It's doing a transformational search almost on every word. It goes very quickly. And it's, it's finding the meaning of that word for you in the context and, and then fixing on that. And so, in effect, that becomes your choice of reality. It's very similar. I don't know if it's the same thing or not, but we could use the, the, the quantum state vector as a, uh, uh, the wave collapse uh, as, a, uh, as a metaphor to describe this, right? Uh, in, in that, when a measurement is made, right, the, the, uh, a particle is in a superposition. It has all the different qualities. And then a measurement is made, and one aspect is fixed on, and that becomes the whether it's a particle or a wave or it's, uh, you know, it's spinning this way or it's spinning that way, depends on the measurement. And in effect, that, that transdervational search on a, maybe a, a more macro scale, uh, what's happening in our brain is a very similar process. Uh, you're, if I say, think about an apple, right? Is it a red one, a green one, a yellow one, a big one, a small one, a tasty one, a nasty one? What is it, right? Uh, and then you have to fix on that, and you go, oh, yeah, I had a great apple the other day, right? And then and your brain says, well, apples are a good thing, <laughs> right? So uh, whereas the person next to you goes, oh, I bit into an apple the other day, and I had a worm in it, so apples are a bad thing. Ooh. Uh, and, right? So these two people live in different realities, one where apples are great, one where apples have worms in them. Uh, so uh, in effect, we're, we're sort of fixing our reality in that way. Now, in uh, neuro-linguistic programming and other things, we, we talk about submodalities, right? Submodalities are these little subtle details in sensory experience, right? In terms of uh, auditory, you know, volume, pitch, things like that, and visual, all the things on that Photoshop pull-down menu, uh, <laughs> you know, they're all submodalities. Is it bright? Is it dim? Is it colored? Is it not? So on. Uh, these are actually the kind of things that, that our minds on an unconscious level use to tag internal experiences to tell us things about whether we like things or not, uh, and so on. Uh, whether something's good for us, whether we approve of it, whether we want to do it, and things like that. Um, we, we use the, these kinds of things metaphorically, right? Uh, uh, somebody that you like might be warm or you might feel close to them or things like that. So uh, these are sensory, small sensory variables that we use to, to do that. Um, now, when you, go, when you do a transdermational search, uh, I'm, I've been sort of pointing to these obvious things, the, these different larger memories and uh, experiences that we fix on in transdermational search. But for the most part, it's these very minute uh, submodalities that are what we fix on and, and happens on, uh, that we pick unconsciously. And uh, our, our reality is really built of these. It's built of these subtle and small sensory experiences. So when we're doing magic, we're actually looking for ways to influence that process to be able to do that. Uh, when we're in a situation where we can experience both executive function and the default network and be aware of that transderivational search, then suddenly we sort of see all these branching possibilities coming off of everything. And, uh, and cannabis facil facilitates that very nicely. Uh, you become able to sort of notice 
I don't know, the, the, the different aspects of things trailing off from, from everything in which you can kind of uh, notice the different possibilities and pick, on, pick one or another consciously or less consciously. Um, so um, it's sort of, uh, it, it's, it's a key into that, uh, into, into at least noticing that process. Now, whether or not you decide to use cannabis on a regular basis in your magic or not, having that experience at least a few times gives you some hints about what's going on unconsciously and how you can influence that uh, and, and how you can use those kinds of experiences and behaviors in, in magic uh, whenever you do magic. So what would you recommend to people... What, what types of exercises should they educate themselves on to be able to take it to that level to the point that they can use an intoxicating substance like the cannabis and not lose control? Right. Uh, well, uh, I think it's probably, it's an individual thing. I mean, everybody responds a little bit differently to, to both cannabis and to magic. Uh, uh, so I, I would say that... Um, to start with, maybe you pick some very basic practice that you do. Meditation, maybe a pranayama exercise, a breathing exercise. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, or uh, a banishing ritual, something very basic. And add in a little bit. You know, take, you know, a, a small little puff and, and see what happens. See if it changes it in some way. See if it, if it facilitates what you're doing. And, you know, again, do something that you're very familiar with, right? Because it'll, first of all, take out the variables of, uh, of knowing what's going to happen with the, with the, the ritual or the meditation. Uh, and um, it, it'll also enable you to, to be able to see any contrast, right? To see if what you did is different than what you're used to. So, so again, you know, pick something that you're really familiar with and very basic, you know, and if you've been a magician or a meditator, a yogi or whatever for, for many years, like I know you guys have and so on, um, you probably have a few practices that you've done, you know, your whole life and, sure. uh, or at least for many years. And those would be the ones to pick and, and just try a little bit, you know, a little bit beforehand. So one of the things that is the consumption method, does it change the impact that cannabis actually has? So we've been talking about smoking, but in many of the states, you know, where you can do this, obviously edible cannabis or, you know, obviously like in Hindu culture, they have drinks that are cannibals. Right drinks um does that change the effectiveness or which parts of the mind body complex it actually affects well I, I think the general effect of that default network executive function thing remains the same however uh you do uh, when you're smoking it you can titrate the effect a little bit better right you can you can take a couple puffs until you reach the level that you want and stop uh, consuming it as an edible or a drink, uh, well, you're down for the ride for the next <laughs> several hours, right? Um, 
you know, it's going to take a while to kick in, and then and then you're you're there. <laughs> whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and you you can't really back off or stop or whatever. So uh, there's some. Uh, it's interesting. Like in New York State here, our our medical law says you can't smoke it. You can only have edibles, and that disturbs me a little bit because edibles are actually a little bit more dangerous as far as I'm concerned because you can actually dose much higher uh, than you'd like without knowing it. Right? Um, if people have been, were following some of the, the when Colorado first legalized, uh, Maureen Dowd, the uh, New York Times columnist, went there to see what was going on and she ate this candy bar uh, that you're only supposed to eat like a tenth of it. She ate the whole thing. And she wrote this column about how she had this eight-hour freakout in her hotel room. Um, so now we call eating too much edibles overdowed. Uh, but uh, that's a good example of what you don't want to do. <laughs> right. uh, now, the, the ancient, in the ancient world, uh, originally these were employed as beverages uh, and, and as edibles. And the original Soma beverage uh, and, and Homa, they were... Uh, milk-based beverages like that Amrita stuff that uh, Shiva was stirring up. And uh, that later became what's known as Bhang, B-H-A-N-G, in, uh, uh, in India. Uh, and they still drink that, although the, the sadhus tend to prefer uh, their, their chillums. They tend to prefer smoking it. Um, but those are still used on uh, some of the, uh, the holy days in India. Uh, the bong is very uh, B H A N G, not B O N G. Is is very popular. It's uh, everybody everybody drinks it. It's, a, it's like a milkshake with spices in it uh, and cannabis. Uh, but it's really the same formula as that old the soma from from way back when. And uh, there's uh, I mean there's archaeological evidence of, of this milk based beverage going way way back. Uh, may even be part of why uh, cows are sacred and so on. Uh, mm. so, uh, yeah, but mm. so anyway, there there are some differences when you eat it. It, it actually is metabolized in the liver, uh, and so so the effects are a little bit different, uh, and they can be very very intense uh, eating it. Uh, well, let me just smoke it, it bypasses the liver. Let me just add in, <laughs> Phil, that it it totally that also can depend on your biology, like. I'm the kind of person, the effects of smoking are much stronger for me than the effects of anything I've ever had that was edible. Okay. Yeah, and, but, and but that is... I do, is I, I do get that I'm an outlier in that case. Okay. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> a little bit different. Uh, we all have uh, different concentrations of, of cannabinoid receptor sites uh, in different parts of our body. Uh, and it's, it's a genetic thing. Uh, and, and also, uh, there's some evidence that it may actually be stimulated by, oh, the kinds of fats you eat, eating uh, omega-3s and things like that, tends to support uh, greater concentrations of, of cannabinoid receptors and so on. Um, so, so it may depend on diet, but it's, it's more likely really a genetic thing. And So uh, fish oil still, can actually make it more effective, huh? Yeah, Absolutely. And hmm. is in general, and uh, you know, you, you have to remember that it, uh, it's not really widely a, a popular idea. But the 
the scientific findings are that the endocannabinoid system, the, the system of cannabinoid receptor sites in your brain and in your body, um, is actually a, one of the most important systems in the body. It, it helps the body to maintain homeostasis. It helps almost all the other systems stay in balance. And we're finding that there's a number of diseases, uh, things like fibromyalgia and things like that, that are actually seem to be defects in the endocannabinoid system. And uh, uh, so people who, uh, who use medical, uh, medical marijuana and so on to treat these things like Crohn's disease uh, and so on, um, uh, they get very quick relief from it. And uh, uh, so uh, we all have this system and, and you know, but our, all of our other systems and the whole thing, I mean, it's as unique as your fingerprints or, or uh, whatever. And uh, um, so we're a little bit different. Some of us may have more concentrations of the receptors in parts, different parts of the brain or different parts of our immune system or our body and so on. Uh, so, so, yeah, there's people who, who definitely respond uh, to smoking differently and to eating it differently. And there's some people who really don't respond at all. There's, there's some people who have... Uh, uh, endocannabinoid systems that just really don't do much with uh, 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 with external cannabis. Hmm. So, so let's talk about you, Phil. Let's talk about some personal experience. I want to know about <laughs> something that you did without marijuana versus with marijuana, and what differences you observed. Oh, okay. Uh, well, this is getting getting pretty personal, but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> way back when, let's, let's see, probably probably the most dramatic experience that I had was um, way back in, I guess around 1990, I guess, uh, I was working with uh, Liebersonic, right, the, the HGA operation, uh, basically Crowley's version of it, yeah. and man, I was doing that thing every day. <laughs> Working through that version of the Bornless Ritual, and and uh, you know, and was having some experiences, and I was getting into sort of trance states and stuff like that. And then finally, I said, "Well, let's try it with a little bit of cannabis." And well, that's when the when the ritual paid off, let's say. And and I I suddenly had this experience of just a totally different experience of my body, uh, and suddenly I was very very calm, and I knew exactly what I needed to do to write a book. I had pretty much my first book come into my head uh, just in, in almost its entirety, and it took me, you know, the next six months or so to write it down. Um, and, and some other aspects about where my magical practice was going. And, and all of this in the space of like an hour. <laughs> and a very intense experience and, and very pleasant as well. It was really kind of like you know, uh, an, an ecstatic kind of thing. And the, the wealth of information was what really convinced me that this was, uh, that I was onto something here, that I, I was, uh, you know, because the information was stuff I'd been trying to get to and thinking about and so on, and then suddenly a, a very powerful breakthrough and just, you know, tons of stuff in my head <laughs> that, uh, that needed to be worked out over the next, you know, months and years and so on. So, Phil, how far were you along in the, the Holy Guardian Angel ritual 
like how many days in were you when you you had that experience that the cannabis uh, was able to make that help you make that breakthrough? Uh, I was probably some months into it, uh, and uh, we were living in a place called Milan, New York, uh, way out in the woods, and I had this little cabin uh, where I had my magical temple, and uh, I'd go there every day, and I'd do yoga, and I'd do my magic, and uh, uh, and yeah, so it was probably it was probably a couple months into it, and uh, uh, and I had been working on that, you know. Uh, pretty consistently, uh, pretty much every day, and uh, uh, and and again having some kind of you know, typical experiences where I, I go, "Ooh, that was cool," and whatever. But then that one day that I did that was it just you know blew the top of my head off, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. suddenly the whole the whole thing was really just you know flowing. But this kind of goes back to our statement, uh, kind of what I was getting at a little bit earlier is you had two months to actually get the ritual down really fully. You weren't struggling with the ritual when you went in. You, you were ready Absolutely. for the experience. You like, you, I mean, two months in, you probably already have it memorized and you're ready to go. Um, so it's right. not, it's, it's not, it's a, it kind of reinforces that's two months of prep work for an experience that was really profound. Um, but it wasn't coming in with no work. Like you'd memorize the ritual before you even tried that, which is what you were saying earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take the work out of magic. It's not something that's gonna gonna just like you know blam. Uh, you know, all you have to do is go to smoke a joint, and suddenly you're you're the greatest magician who ever lived. And it doesn't work. Uh, you, you do you have to put the time in. You have to put the work into it as usual. And uh, you know, I mean. It's, there's a lot of different techniques that, you know, maybe some other technique, a trance technique or, uh, you know, something else, a different yoga technique or something may have done the same thing. I don't really know. Uh, but that's what, what happened for me. Nice. And I appreciate that, Phil, because really what we've been trying to do as of late is really get the guest personal experiences, get that little bit of a personal, <laughs> authentic touch into the show. Yeah, and uh, you know, in in general, I've found that uh, just in terms of, of meditating and and so on, uh, I'll I'll do cycles where I'll 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 meditate every day for a while, and then one day out of the week, I'll do it with, with a little bit of cannabis, and and it's sort of I don't know, it, uh, it just takes it to another level, and that level stays. I mean, you, you have that memory, and it's and the experiences and so on, then the next time you go to meditate with or without the cannabis, you're, you're, you're up a little bit higher <laughs> anyway. Hmm. Is, do, you, do you feel like, um, especially in other countries where we have other listeners where it's clearly, it's much um, less legally contentious nowadays, um, do you think this is that's a good combination to to try out like meditation particularly? I mean, you mentioned banishing rituals, but you know, a Zen style meditation or just prana and work where you're just sitting and breathing. Um, and do you feel like that's a probably to go back to some things a really good place to start because. And you're not doing it every day, too. That was another important point you made. You're like, it's once a week, and you're meditating every day, though. Right, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I, I have gone through cycles where I've done it more frequently, um, and that was interesting as well in, in its own way. But but my, my typical thing is more I, I, I do the meditation and, and the magic and so on for a while, and then I use that to have a breakthrough. Um, and uh, I've done this with other, other entheogens and so on over the years as well. Uh, with similar kinds of experiences, but the, the cannabis has really been uh, an ally and a uh, 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 a useful tool for me for uh, many, many years. I was going to ask about that because usually um, some of the other ethnogens that are generally associated with magic tend to be much more hallucinogenic than many people's experience on cannabis. Does that change a lot of the things in how it would be used and the level that you can control it or not um, because it's, for most people, it seems less hallucinogenic? Right, and, well, and also for most people, we've had uh, cannabis experiences in other contexts, right? Hanging out with friends or going to the movies or whatever, you know, and uh, you know, going to a concert. Or, and you tend to have enough experience with that that you're not going to be afraid of, like, you know, getting up and walking across the room. <laughs> right? Whereas, uh, you know, if you, you took a hit of acid or something like that, uh, or, you know, some of the older things that mag magicians did, nightshade drugs, you know, you, 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 had, yeah. you had your henbane and then you, you did your magic. Um, at some point, you're out of control. You're, there's things happening that you can't really stop or, uh, or get out of or get away from or something like that. Whereas with cannabis, you could. You could stand up and walk away. You know, so, so there's that. There's the, 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 the mildness of it that... Uh, that it's actually a benefit. You can have these experiences and achieve the intensity through the technique, through the magic or the meditation, uh, and not necessarily through the with the cannabis as, a, as an aid to that, rather than necessarily as the thing that's uh, you know going to just blow you wide open. On the other hand, there are uh, you know certainly entheogenic rituals that people have where uh, they have these intense experiences, people go to Peru and have their ayahuasca experiences and, that are life-changing and so on. Uh, the contexts are different, and you, for something like that, I would say you, you would want to set up a ritual frame uh, that you would feel safe in and then allow whatever's going to happen to happen. Um, whereas with the cannabis, there's a little bit more leeway in terms of changing things and getting up and walking away or, you know, uh, right, right. Uh, and, and so Although the cannabis experience you had with the Holy Garden Angel ritual was so profound that it, it literally changed your life. You were able to write, um, you know, come up with the book, have the book in your head that you were just basically yeah. plopping down. So <laughs> you can't uh, really yeah, dismiss I, I, it, I would... right? It was literally kind of like a huge uh, huge event then yeah it, it was however I, I could have stopped at any time I didn't want to yeah. <laughs> because it was awesome but uh, uh, but I could have I could have stopped and gotten up and walked away I could have ended the experience when I wanted to whereas if, if it were you know uh, 
you know, uh, LSD or something, no, I, I wouldn't have been able to stop the experience. <laughs> I would have been there for a while. Right. Another, another eight hours. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, and, and in fact, during that experience, I was still, I was still doing the ritual. I was still practicing what I was doing to maintain it and, and extend the experience. Uh, so, uh, uh, along with the cannabis, um, and, and it was just, you know, it was just a few pots. It wasn't, I wasn't like sitting there smoking the whole time. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I put it down as not, it wasn't the cannabis, it was the ritual. The cannabis was, was an intensifier. It was something that, that, that helped sort of jog me out of my usual state of mind and allow this to happen. So mm-hmm. let me ask you this, okay? We have examples of people smoking it before ritual. We have examples of people drinking it, eating it. Do you have examples of people using it more like an incense, burning it in the ritual space while performing a ritual? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's, that actually goes way back. Uh, there's even one, one story, I don't know the, the veracity of this, but uh, that they, the, the Catholic Church used that as, as part of their uh, the sacramental incense that was used in, uh, uh, in churches for, uh, for many years, up until the 1930s or so, when it was made illegal in a lot of places. Uh, the uh-huh. Scythians, uh, uh, going way back, the Scythians... Uh, not only did they have the, the, the Soma beverage uh, that they brought around, but they pioneered, uh, they, they actually invented the vaporizer. <laughs> they, they had these, <laughs> these brass vessels that they would heat, they would put cannabis tops in it, and they would heat it, and it would make vapor. And they would make these little tents, and you would go in the tent and just inhale the fumes that were in the tent and so on. Uh, and then, then you'd come out, and uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, records that they would come out with cries of ecstasy. <laughs> they go, Woo-hoo, that was great. <laughs> uh, hey. That was more like an incense kind of thing. If, if you're not having so fun, they didn't really have to hype with the later invention. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just it's it's all very very interesting. Um, trying to think of a, of a of a decent like okay outside of ritual space have, what have you found to be mm, good and say just meditative space uh, say that again rather than than doing magical ritual what have you found the uses for cannabis to be in just personal meditation oh okay yeah uh, um it is it is very interesting to combine with with yoga and and so on. And again, you have um, you find that you're able to maintain your concentration on say you have a mantra or something that you're you're meditating on. Uh, you're able to maintain your concentration on and still be aware of the uh, the insights and the uh, and the the kind of experiences the visions and so on uh, that occur uh, and uh, I, I think without it you tend to, to have more where you're making effort to stay with your concentration uh, and the insights become intrusive and uh, they register as breaks in concentration uh, whereas with cannabis you, you tend to be able to have both of them and to, and to keep, your, keep your mantra flowing and so on uh, it's an interesting experience um, yeah. and 
know. Well, I'll, uh, I'll admit, Phil, I've been the uh, the bad guy, and Andrea can tell the audience this is true that um, I'll be doing that mantra work with them, and I'll start to have the hallucinatory experience just through the mantra, and I'll break the mantra in in ways that he's yelled at me for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is the the cannabinoids can actually help you do both and not break the mantra. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you know, some people since, since cannabis has this moderating effect, right? It, it's your endocannabinoid system again; it maintains balance. Uh, there's people who are very distracted normally that cannabis will actually help them to focus. I mean, we tend to think of people getting stoned and getting spacey and kind of, you know, losing track of what they're saying and things like that. And of course, for most of us, that does happen. Um, for, for some people, however, the, uh, it, it does tend to increase your focus. And uh, uh, in, uh, again, the, the set and setting, the ritual use, your ritual intent and, uh, how much you're using plays into that, you know, uh, to some extent as well. Um, it's possible again to, to to ingest too much and <laughs> and get spacey and kind of lose lose your lose the plot. But uh, uh, but for the most part, in in smaller amounts and for people who are experienced uh, using cannabis, uh, it will enable that that focus to continue and and allow you to have both the the, the visionary experience and and stay with your mantra. So we have a few minutes remaining, folks. Andrea, was there anything you wanted to interject before we uh, see what Phil's got going on? No, that it's it's fascinating to uh, kind of talk about this, and it's going to become more and more of a kind of in the popular eye mindset as the culture war in the United States keeps uh, waging as it seems uh-huh. um, yeah yeah I, I think we're, we're uh, I mean we're already seeing if you go to Colorado or California there's already like you know 420 yoga classes in a, in a lot of places uh, and even in other places where it's, it's still not quite as legal there's still 420 yoga classes where people you know they prep outside the at the place and show up. Um, well, yeah, and I mean, between between this and microdosing in California, and this is a big part of California culture too. Like, it's becoming much more mainstream than people would think. Yeah, I think so, and I'm, I, it'd be interesting to see what the ultimate effect on our culture is going to be. Um, you know, I, I think it, I think ultimately it's going to be a positive one, uh, just because we're not locking people up all the time. Uh, well, uh, but yeah. the, <laughs> I mean that's a good thing. The right? so less people we, we lock up over plans, you know, that, that's a good thing. Um, well, we're, just remember, as the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers put it back in the day, with Californication, as California goes, so does the rest of the country eventually. I, I think so. <laughs> I, I think that's right. And, and we're seeing it. New York, it looks like New York is getting ready to, to they're at least considering legalizing now. Uh, we have two, uh, two Democratic candidates who are involved in the primaries, our, our current governor and another one who, they made it one of the main issues now, whether or not uh, they're going to legalize. Um, and part of that is because New Jersey has uh, elected a governor who's 
uh, whose platform was legalization, <laughs> Governor Murphy. Uh, so our neighboring states and some of our other neighboring states. So we're going to see it. It's going to sweep sweep the country. Uh, ultimately, uh, the way the repeal of alcohol prohibition did, and that actually began in California too. Ah, nice. Hey, Phil, why don't you tell the audience what public events that you have going on here soon? <laughs> well, at the moment, I don't, I've, I've been taking a break for uh, family and health issues. Uh, I, I've been taking some breaks from uh, from going out and teaching and, and stuff like that. Uh, however, I do do uh, personal consultations and so on, and people can find that on the HawkridgeProductions.com uh, website. Uh, and my, my books are out there on Amazon and uh, and so on. I, I, I want people who are interested in the cannabis stuff. <clears throat> I haven't published the, uh, uh, the cannabis book yet. I'm still polishing that up. Um, however, I, my most recent book is a novel called Legendary Blue Smoke, uh, in which I, I used a lot of these uh, magical ideas about cannabis uh, in it. And um, I personally think that novels are... Uh, are as magical as, as any other thing and much more fun to read and write. So um, if you want some of these, you want to pick up some of these ideas in a, in a fun context, uh, check out my novel, Legendary Blue Smoke. It is a fun book. I've had a chance to take a look at it. Y'all should check it out. Uh, the rest of Phil's information will be available on ddtrh.com if you're listening right now. And Phil, I want to thank you for coming out and talking to us. Spending this was pre-recorded the Sunday previous to Aaron, so thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule, sir. Yeah, thank you. I, I enjoyed talking to you uh, about this, and uh, um, uh, I wish you guys well. Wish you well too. Thanks. All right. Thanks again, Phil. All right. Thank you. Take care.